Ancestral healing and ancestral remembrance are such important parts of our lives and our practice. Many of the things that we've experienced as trauma in our lives are patterns, are wounds that have been passed down through generations. Most of us have experienced intergenerational trauma. All of our ancestors have experienced pain, and both their pain and their wisdom can get passed down through us. We've talked a lot about inner child work on this podcast and at large these days. It's become really popular. And I always like to say, if we are going to tend to our inner child, we also have to receive mentorship from our elders. That means our ancestors. Building relationships with my ancestors, living and non-living, has been one of the greatest, most grounding aspects of my spiritual work and my trauma healing. So in this episode, I'm going to share with you a bit about some of my learnings with ancestor work, as well as some practical, tangible rituals, steps, prayers, things that you can do on a daily basis to engage in ancestor work, whether or not you have living ancestors that you feel connected to, or even ancestral practices that you feel connected to. You can do this no matter where you are. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here, so let's dive in. Resma Minikim, who's the author of My Grandmother's Hands, said, What we call out as individual personality flaws, dysfunctional family dynamics, or twisted cultural norms are sometimes manifestations of historical trauma, end quote. And another wonderful author on intergenerational trauma, Mark Wallen, he wrote a book called It Didn't Start With You and said, unresolved traumas from our family history spill into successive generations, blending into our emotions, reactions, and choices in ways we never think to question. We assume these experiences originate with us, end quote. What I've learned more than anything is that our wounds very often don't originate with us. They are shared. They are collective. They are very often familial and intergenerational. It's why I think one of the biggest critiques of the mental health system is that we don't look at the origins of trauma. We might have one diagnosis out of dozens PTSD that even acknowledges trauma in the first place, but often the only kind of trauma that it acknowledges is interpersonal trauma, an extreme event or circumstance. We very rarely take the time to understand for ourselves or for those that we're hoping to help or support the real origins of the ways that trauma gets passed down in our bodies. And as Resma Manikim says in his book, there are three main ways it can be passed down through our DNA, through epigenetics. There's a lot of fascinating research on this that I'll link below. It can also be passed down through family norms, beliefs, stories, narratives that we have about who we are and where we came from, things that are families have just said or perpetuated over time that we think are just 
unique to us or our family, but very often go far beyond our living ancestors. And lastly, of course, perhaps most insidiously, is through systemic oppression and institutions that perpetuate the historical trauma that, especially when it comes to the United States, we have so rarely, if ever, been willing to look at. And although I live in Germany now, close to Berlin, and that is where one portion of my ancestry comes from, I've spent most of my life in the United States, and I think what makes the United States so troubled in this area is that most of us are not indigenous to the United States. Most of us come from ancestors who are responsible for the mass genocide of indigenous people in the United States. Most of us don't feel quite as connected or to varying degrees are connected or disconnected through colonialism to our ancestors and where we came from. As the folks at the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond like to say, there's a lot of grief and loss inherent in what your ancestors had to do when they came from Europe, for example, to come to be known as white or to come to be known as an American. It requires, in some ways, an erasure of our ancestral practices. There's so much that our ancestors, if we are white and grew up in America, had to do in order to assimilate. And of course, this is not only true for white folks. So finding a path back to our ancestors and our ancestry can be filled with grief. We can feel like we might not have as much access or remembrance as we want to have to certain aspects of our lineage. We may even not understand the importance of ancestor work or wonder why, what is the utility of this. But I think there's a reason why so many of us yearn for a sense of belonging, yearn for a sense of deep community within structures that are reliant upon our hyper-individuality and ways that we become separated from each other. Ancestor work to me is the ultimate rooted, grounded force of meaning-making, spirituality, and developing that sense of belonging, community, and humility. I grew up raised by my grandparents. My grandmother was a first-generation German immigrant, and my grandfather was a first-generation Filipino immigrant who joined the U.S. Army. They met in Wiesbaden in Germany. This was my grandmother's second marriage, and together they came to the United States and got stationed there through my grandfather's work. I consider myself so lucky to have grown up in such close connection to my elders. I was raised pretty much by my grandparents. I grew up right across the street from them, spending most of my time at their house. And I think that there's a reason why in so many cultures, children often grow up around or directly with their grandparents, their elders. There's a lot of similarities between the oldest in the family and the youngest. But one interesting thing that I didn't quite realize until I was older is that my grandmother's traditions, the German tradition, really took the forefront in my family. It's all we really knew. The only thing we would talk about with my Filipino side 
is we'd joke about being on island time if anyone was late. But most of the stories, the language, the elaborate cooking and holiday traditions were all very German. It wasn't until my grandmother passed away that I looked around my family and realized there's a whole other side of my ancestry that I know almost nothing about. And I spent my grandfather's last months with him really trying to learn and understand where he came from. And I started to learn that all of our family stories about the Philippines and about where he came from were actually really reductionist or not quite true. I was always told that my family in the Philippines were farmers, my grandfather's parents were farmers of sugarcane and pineapple, and that they came to the United States looking for work, and eventually they moved back to the Philippines. The real story I wound up finding out through my grandfather is that they were essentially indentured servants, enslaved by U.S. sugarcane and pineapple companies, told that they would have good work, a roof over their head, that their food would be paid for, and all of these were broken and empty promises. My grandfather grew up in the villages of these indentured servants from all over the world and grew up within this racism and oppression. And he never used those terms, but described countless stories of what he had to face. And one of the most, one of the strongest memories I have in really realizing the depth of this is he used to call himself stupid all the time. He had this narrative about himself that he was not smart, that his English wasn't that great growing up. And he used to say that he spoke pigeon English. And I thought that pigeon English was just a word that he made up in the heat of the moment, a self-effacing term. Really, I realized later, looking it up on Google, that pidgin English is a real language that was spoken in Hawaii, which is where they landed. And it's a real language made up of Spanish, Portuguese, Japanese, Tagalog, and a few other languages that the workers would use to speak with each other in resistance to the plantation owners or the U.S. company owners. And this was a moment for me where I realized, to give you one example of an ancestral wound, I had always blamed my mother, as we like to do, for the imposter syndrome that I noticed was a similarity between us. I grew up with an immense amount of imposter syndrome, thinking that any time I was given any kind of opportunity, a speaking opportunity, a teaching opportunity, an award or achieved an accomplishment, I always felt like I didn't deserve it and had this immense terror and fear that people would find out that they made the wrong choice in choosing me because actually I had no idea what I was talking about. And I noticed that my mother had the same thing, thinking that I just picked up this behavior from her, from watching it or being around it. But it wasn't until I really heard all of these stories about my grandfather that I not only realized it didn't originate with my mother, that it went back through him as well, but likely didn't even start with him. 
And not only that, that imposter syndrome or that internalized shame of thinking that you don't deserve the opportunities or accomplishments that you have in life or thinking that you're stupid or not good at something, that immense level of self-doubt, when you take it in a context of a world that's rooted in forms of oppression like racism and hierarchical violent structures, the kinds of things that my ancestors had to experience, imposter syndrome is no longer just a personality trait or something that develops out of nowhere. Imposter syndrome makes far more sense in a world or situations where some of us are made to feel like imposters made to assimilate to or try to adapt to spaces, places, systems, structures that weren't built for some of us. And we all experience that to different degrees depending on where we have privilege and access and where we don't. But it was mind-blowing to start to understand that some of the things that I thought was just inherently wrong with myself or my family, or some of these patterns or insecurities were not only not solely mine, not something that was just a figment of my imagination or something that my brain made up or an aspect of my personality, but that it was deeply ancestral and deeply contextual. I think that there are also many ways that this internalized shame and internalized inferiority that got passed down through my grandfather and my mother and me, there are so many ways that when this wasn't named as an ancestral wound or as a wound of colonization and historical trauma and violence, that shame has a way of being pitted against itself or family members being pitted against each other. So it's really so important, I think, for us to understand even the far less visible aspects of our family history and context. Because there are ways that we may not yet understand how it shapes us and impacts us. And again, it's not only the wounds that impact us, but also our legacies of wisdom. I shared this example, and Elmina Bell also shares some wonderful examples of this in our podcast episode that we did together in conversation. I believe this was episode 14, where I talk about never fully being grounded or rooted in indigenous Filipino spirituality, but somehow ways that I would only later come to learn that it would be lived out through me. For example, I have several tattoos And while my grandmother and my mother were very disapproving of these tattoos, so many of them to me felt very spiritually protective and very important. So much so that one of the tattoos that I wound up getting came to me in a dream and I knew that I had to get them. They were symbols that I didn't even understand at the time when I had the dream, but I trusted the process and I trusted that I needed to have these on my body. It was only later that I learned that traditional Filipino tattooing called tatak 
is not only really common, very common for women, but also a deeply spiritual and communal practice. And the places, some of the symbols and the place where I decided to get it on my body, on my hands, on my fingers, are also very common for people in the Philippines. So there are so many ways, even if you don't wake up to a dream about your ancestral practices, the ways that we decide to carry out certain things in our lives, I believe that there's so much ancestral wisdom that lives through us. And it starts with our living ancestors. So to kick us off in thinking about some of the practices or direct things that you can do to start to gain a deeper connection or forge a deeper connection with your ancestors. The first thing I always recommend is to start with your living ancestors. Start with the ones that are still in your life, even if you don't feel like you have such a close connection to them. There are so many people that would be honored to be asked some questions about their life and their world and their viewpoint and what they remember about their family or their childhood. Of course, ask with humility and with reverence. Never push someone to talk about something they don't want to. But I found that I spent so much time thinking that I already knew because again, we have these ingrained family narratives about what happened. But when we ask or probe a little bit deeper or from a different lens, we can receive so much information that we didn't even know was there. The second thing I love to do with ancestral practices and reverence is to create my home in a way that honors the ancestors. For me, this means having plenty of pictures of my beloved ancestors around and designing my home in a way that really facilitates the kind of function that I want my home to have. If your ancestors loved music, having a space in your home for playing music in community. If your ancestors loved to gather or you have a sense that that is part of your connection with your ancestors, having spaces in your home that make it easy for people to gather. If your ancestors loved sitting on the floor, having floor cushions, the home, the hearth, I find, is actually a really intimate place for connecting with your ancestors. So structuring your home and facilitating a dynamic with your home in a way that co-creates connection to your ancestors is really important. A third piece to this is engaging in some kind of familial practice around cooking and food or a spiritual practice. And that also means starting to dig deeper or do some research into where that practice came from. If you have an old family recipe and it's just been in the family for a long time, probe into the origins of that recipe. Even if you come from highly religious families, let's say Catholic or Protestant or Jewish religions all have very pagan roots. <laughs> religions all have customs or practices that they essentially attempted to assimilate different pagan rituals into their rituals in order to 
assert dominance. But what that means is that there are often really interesting origins even to religious practices. All Catholic or Christian holidays have far more interesting and celebratory pagan roots. And honestly, the word pagan was just given to anyone who wasn't of that dominant religion. The word pagan itself means a person who is not of that religious belief. So learn about the underlying indigenous roots to some of the practices that you may think of as normal or has just been in the family for years find out where it came from. Another thing I do on a daily basis to commune with my ancestors is just to ask for their direct help with something very specific. It can be the tiniest things. I talked about this also in the podcast episode with Elmina Bell on ancestral and indigenous wisdom, that building that connection doesn't just mean asking your ancestors for help when something huge is going on. It can mean asking for anything and giving gratitude for the tiniest things. The example I gave in that podcast episode is that I often struggle to put on jewelry with the tiny little clasps. And so I've started asking my ancestors for help with that tiniest thing. And it works every single time. It's just a way of saying, hey, I could use your help. And receiving that help feels so good. It's their way of saying, yes, we're here. We've got you. If you want to do a more elaborate ritual, I do recommend setting up an altar space for your ancestors. You don't even necessarily need pictures of living ancestors, and you don't need to know who your ancestors are. You can just ask that your healed ancestors show up to support and guide you or to give gratitude and thanks to your healed ancestors. All you need is a little space and a candle and anything else that you want to add to that altar space that has meaning to you. When I'm engaging in any kind of ritual, I call on my ancestors or any kind of spiritual practice and I leave a little gift for my ancestors on the altar. It can be fresh flowers, it can be uh, some herbs or spices, it can be um, a little treat, a candy or a cookie, it can be a glass of water, anything. Now, to get a little bit more elaborate, one of my favorite ancestral practices, especially at this time of year, at the time of recording this, it's November, and I love this time of year for making a spell jar. So if you just have a clear glass jar or any kind of glass jar with you, going out for a walk somewhere in nature, even if you live in a big city, going out, walking through a park or a cemetery or some patch of grass nearby and collecting little things from nature in that jar, making sure that you're not overpicking or over-harvesting any plants or herbs that you don't want to disturb, but just picking up leaves, pine needles, berries, rocks, acorns, shells, sand, wherever you are, putting some little bits of nature into this jar. Once you have all your nature treasures with you, taking it home, putting it on your altar, and setting an intention. 
that you're calling your ancestors in to support you with, you can write this intention on a piece of paper and put it in the jar as well. You can just speak your intentions into the jar, close the lid, and keep it on your altar space as a space holder for your intention and for that ancestral support. I find that spell jars work really, really well for having longer-term intentions or wishes that you're seeking support with. And lastly, I want to talk a little bit about how I work with ancestral wounds once I've identified what an ancestral wound might be. The first thing I always do is start with the body because even any of our emotional ancestral wounding has a place that it lives in the body. This can be a shared physical pain that you might have with an ancestor. For example, my grandmother always struggled with stomach ulcers, and that is certainly something that I've struggled with in my life as well. So you may have a shared diagnosis, but even if you don't, all of our emotional wounds also land in the body. So when you're starting to work with ancestral wounding and ancestral healing, Start with seeing if you can locate that wounding somewhere in the body. And you can just scan, and even if you don't feel a specific sensation, trust where you're guided to in the body. Then you can start to ask that part of your body what wounding it's carrying. See if you can get more information about it, not from the mind, but from how it really feels. See if you can bring some type of awareness to it where you start to get maybe images, colors, sensations, words that come to mind. And perhaps you can even put a phrase around it, around that particular wounding. The way that I described imposter syndrome, that's just one word or one bit of language for it. But maybe you're discovering a wound in your body that feels like the wound of not belonging or the wound of self-doubt, or the wound of self-sacrifice. Whatever it might be, see if you can start to put words to it. Then I always ask in meditation, if there's an ancestor or several ancestors that I've had that have experienced this as well, and I just start to gather some information. This is where it really requires you to trust your intuition. And if you're not someone that receives information directly through meditation like that, you can do writing around it, freehand channeled writing. See if anything comes to you. See if you feel a presence or a storyline start to emerge, or maybe you remember different narratives or stories that your family members have told you that relate to this particular wounding. So see if your body is open to receiving information about times that your ancestors have experienced this particular wound. Then I always ask for my healed ancestors to come in and support this process. And I ask that all of my ancestors who are unhealed or who are still working through this particular wound receive the healing that they need in whatever way they need it. I then ask that wound in my body if it's ready to be released and what it needs in order to be released. 
Again, this is another area where you can start to maybe gather some information, see if you get any symbols, sounds, colors, or information about what needs to be released in order for this wound to be healed. And once you get that information through meditation or writing or just setting the intention to receive messages through your dreams or in other ways, once that wound feels like it's ready to be released from my body, I visualize a channel of light from that wound going back through my lineage, asking that that wound returns to its origin in order to be healed and transformed. Again, I ask for the support of my healed ancestors through the completion process. And then I find a way to close that ritual by giving thanks. Whenever you engage in any kind of ritual, don't forget to really set the space. Be clear on your intention. And don't be afraid to ask for the support of your friends, your community of beings living or not living to support you in this work. So whether you're familiar with these kinds of intention-setting practices and rituals or you're just starting this process and just wanting to become more familiar with your ancestors, start to build that connection, I hope that there was some practice in here that you feel encouraged to try. There is no doing this wrong. There is no such thing. I think people often are afraid to engage in some of this spiritual work because they're afraid that they're going to mess it up or not do something right. And truly, your intention is in the process is the absolute most important thing. Trust yourself. Trust the wisdom that you get. Trust your intuition. You are always supported in this process. If you're really interested in this topic, I have breathwork, energy work, and holistic counseling sessions available. The link is in the description below to book a session. And also coming up on December 4th, the Institute for the Development of Human Arts is having a live virtual event called Healing is Homecoming. We have a panel organized after a film screening with Dr. Gabor Mate, and he is amazing. You've probably already seen his work. He just wrote a book called The Myth of Normal. And our keynote speaker this year is Dr. Jennifer Mullen, who is absolutely incredible. She is a clinical psychotherapist who runs decolonizing therapy. There will be many more amazing performances and speakers there and a wonderful community. Every ounce of your donation through ticket sales goes to supporting the work that we do in advancing transformative mental health. And also just wanted to say thank you so much for supporting this podcast, for listening, and for leaving a rating and a review. It really means so much to me. Until next time.